Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Librarians by the Sea podcast. I'm so excited to interview the local maritime history author, Eric J. Dolan. Eric is the author of 14 books, including Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America, which was chosen as one of the best nonfiction books of 2007 by the Los Angeles Times and the Boston Globe, and also won the 2007 John Lyman Award for U.S. Maritime History. His most recent book, Before a Furious Sky, The 500-Year History of America's Hurricanes, which comes out on August 4th, was Black Flag's Blue Waters, the Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. It was chosen as a must-read book for 2019 by the Massachusetts Center for the Book and was a finalist for the 2019 Julia Ward Howe Award, given by the Boston Authors Club. A graduate of Brown, Yale, and MIT, where he received his PhD in environmental policy, Dolan lives in Marblehead with his family. Some of you may be familiar with his books, or have attended one of his talks at the library. In any case, I was so excited to speak with him about his varied background and path to becoming a full-time writer. Enjoy. Yeah, so thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, I think everybody else does sure. it. Um, they talk about you a lot as a, <laughs> a local celebrity, so I'm excited to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's nice. I'm glad that people like my books. I just got a really nice text this morning from through Facebook of an eighth grade, uh, excuse me, an eighth grade history teacher who wrote to tell me that he just read my pirate book, really liked it, and that he teaches about the civil, uh, the American Revolution through the Civil War, and he wanted my advice on what book of mine he should read next, and that just makes my day. I mean, that is so nice, somebody out of the blue to say they're getting some value out of your book, they enjoy it, and maybe you can help uh, kids learn so i you know i gave him some recommendations and pointed to my website which has a bunch of i put together these book trailers for each of my books which are about three to four minutes long and i was shocked to find out a number of years ago i came home and our next door neighbor who was a junior high school student in marblehead who i rarely talked to just said hello and how you doing he goes i saw you on tv today i said <laughs> what he said, in our history class, they showed your your uh, your little video on the float trade. <laughs> I realized that they had the, the teacher had shown my four or five minute book trailer for my book Fur Fortune and Empire, and right about then and since then, I've probably heard from ten to fifteen teachers, mostly junior high school and high school, a couple of homeschoolers too who have said they used my videos. So I, I, I was thrilled because the only reason I put them together is partly they're fun to do. And I was hoping to market my books more, you know, another avenue, right. social media. And I know that they've sold books because my, uh, my fur trade one is had like 80,000 views. So I assume some of those people must have bought a book, but it really was wonderful to find out that a teacher thought it was interesting enough to show to their, their class. Mm. And and my and my neighbor then he thought maybe he thought I was a celebrity too but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's nice let, let me put it this way celebrity I'm not a big fan of celebrity especially the way that we practice it in the United right. States but I am a big fan of people being recognized for doing something that's of value to other people and I got to tell you the best thing in the world for a writer is to hear that 
somebody's reading your work and even better that they enjoy it because I mean, you write for many reasons. I'm a full-time writer, so it's my career and I, I write to earn money. So I'd be very upset if my books didn't sell at, at all. And I'm, I'm much happier when they sell better. But on top of that, it's just great to hear that people are enjoying Mm. your books and, and it must, uh, yeah that's really nice it must be nice for your fans also or you know people who read your books to be to have you so attainable to them you know um seems like you answer a lot of questions on facebook and through email so that oh yeah would be great for people yeah i i i decided a long time ago that i have very little control over the success of my books beyond a few levers that I have available to myself. One of the levers is to give local or regional or even national book talks. And I've been to the Swampscott Public Library probably six or seven times over the years giving talks. And those are great because it gets me out of the house. <clears throat> I like giving the talks. Uh, people show up, sell a few books, have nice conversations, meet some nice people. So for each one of my books, I usually give about anywhere from 40 or 50 to sometimes as many as 80 book talks over the span of a year or two. And the other lever that I have available to myself is one that's become increasingly valuable, even though at first I was very reluctant to use it because I'm not a big fan of social media, only because of its perversions and, and, and uh, people seem to spend too much time online mm -hmm. watching cat videos and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But uh, doing these video book trailers on YouTube has been a very valuable use of my time. Also, I, I rarely post anything on Twitter because I don't find it very useful for authors. It's more about news. Right. But Facebook, I have a professional Facebook page. I have a personal Facebook page, which I hardly ever use, but I set up a professional Facebook page back in 2000 and 10 and over the years it's, it's grown to the point where uh i actually believe that oh i know that it helps me sell books because mm -hmm. i get a lot of feedback from people on the site it's got about eleven thousand followers or people who like the page and it's fascinating to see which posts get the most engagement. And I get a lot of interaction with people, even though it's not face-to-face. -face. It's nice for, you know, writing is a solitary career. And it's nice to hear from somebody from the outside world, like that junior high school teacher that I heard from today. That was a, that was a lot of fun. But the page is designed intentionally by me to do two things. One, be entertaining and interesting, mainly about American history. And what I do mm -hmm. is I use all of my books and other pieces of information to post uh, history tidbits. You know, like on this day, 300 years ago, this happened. And I have a excerpt from one of my books and uh, a little description and a picture. And then at the end of it, I say, you know, if you're interested in this book, you can buy it these different places. And most people don't find that too much pitching because I'm giving them something of value. I also just post a lot of fun things, pictures. When I go to an art museum, I post pictures of paintings and stuff like that. And I get a lot of enjoyment out of the, the, the 
website, uh, I get a lot of feedback. Uh, it, it benefits me because the number of people who see a post, like right now I have a post from that, from March 3rd until April 14th, all Barnes and Noble stores have my pirate book paperback, buy one, get one half price on a special table and special promotion. So I promote that on my website and maybe I generate a few more sales. And I also have gotten requests through my, not my website, my Facebook page. I've gotten requests through my Facebook page to give talks. So that's been really nice. Mm-hmm. So that's been a lot of fun. The only other thing that I can do is my webpage. And I have a webpage, which is pretty static, but it has information on it. And it's another way for me to reach out to the world. Beyond that, it's up to my publisher and the reading public to determine the fate of my books. So as with anybody in any career that has built-in goals, whether it's selling a number of widgets or having a number of people interact or come in and take books out of the library, you know, there are various ways you can measure your success. And there are also hopefully various ways that you can improve upon your success. Mm-hmm. In my case, my success is selling books and those various levers are the only ones available to me. So I use them to the maximum extent possible. Sometimes I wonder if I spend too much time on those, but I know that it has helped me personally. I know that it's helped my career. I know that my publisher is very appreciative because believe it or not, there are a lot of authors who are very unwilling to go out and market themselves, either unwilling or more likely not very skilled at it. And for whatever reason, it's part of my DNA that I can both write a book and promote it. <laughs> to some right. extent. I'm sure that's been so, a big help. It sounds like it has. Um, have you noticed a shift, you know, in, throughout your writing career and the way that you in the way that you do it? I know you talked a lot about how recently you've moved to a um, more digital way of promotion, but is there was there a way before that um, is different from now? Uh, Hmm. No, well, you have to sort of compartmentalize or, or, or divide up my, my career. I, I, I've written 14 books, but only six of them have I written while I was a full-time writer. The others, I had a regular job and I wrote at nights and early in the morning and mm-hmm. on weekends. So my writing career, book career, really started in the late 1990s. And the internet was around, but it wasn't as sophisticated. But by the time 2007 rolled around and I decided to become a full-time writer, the internet was fairly well developed. I'm pretty sure Facebook was around back then, but I didn't hop on Facebook until 2010. So in the last five or 10 years, I don't think my basic strategy has changed. It's just become amplified because more people appear to be doing more things online. And I've also been able to generate more of a following like on my Facebook page. When I started out, I had a few hundred people. Now I've got about 11,000. And the one thing that I did notice, and this is fascinating, because uh, I always wondered how people make money on YouTube and Facebook and those places, these Instagram influencers. I knew how they made money, but I have firsthand experience now with the type of outreach that takes place because for whatever reason, I must have reached a magic algorithm number in the last four or five months with my Facebook page. Mm 
because I have received probably close to 20 emails, direct messages from advertising companies and other people asking to rent space on my Facebook page, basically pay me to post one or two things a week or a month. One of them sent me a message just last week and said that I could earn $300 a day. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if these things are real. I mean, two of them I do know came from a real advertising company because I looked them up online. They have a very nice website and they're basically uh, promoting various products. I will never sell any part of my Facebook page. I'm just opposed to that concept and I think it would violate the trust, whatever trust <clears throat> I've built up with uh, people who follow it. But I do find it fascinating that uh, I just reached a threshold, obviously, in the last four months. And I think it's probably a combination of the number of followers and the number of interactions I get from those followers and shares and how many people look at my site that there's some financial, though I'm sure small, value to advertisers. So maybe in an indirect way, even though it's not something I'd ever take advantage of, it is a nice um, affirmation that my professional Facebook page has some value or reach. Right. Um, so let's back up a little bit. Uh, do you mind talking about your background? Um, I know you mentioned that you have been a part-time and then full-time writer. Uh, do you mind just going into that a little bit and what your process has been like? Sure, my long and sorted background. If you ever saw my resume, you'd think I couldn't keep a job, which <laughs> may be true. Um, well, going way back, I was always into science, marine biology. As a little kid, I collected seashells very seriously. I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau when I grew up. I was really interested in marine biology. When I, I was also writing back then. When I was in high school, I wrote a couple of op-eds for local newspapers. I wrote one that got published in the New York Times. I I wrote a 150-page paper when I was a senior in high school on the mollusks or seashells of Long Island Sound, two chapters of which got published in a malacology magazine. So I was always writing, even way back in high school, but I really thought I was going to become a professional malacologist, which is a seashell scientist or a marine biologist. Mm -hmm. So I went to college, went to Brown University. I started majoring in <coughs> excuse me, biology, and I realized I wasn't very good at hard science. So I took a year off. I did some environmental stuff. I came back and I double majored in biology and uh, environmental studies. And I decided, oh, maybe I'll become a professor. Uh, so I graduated from college and I uh, worked for a couple of years. I was an environmental consultant. I worked for the National Wildlife Federation. Before that, while I was in college, I worked at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. I worked at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. I sort of I did door-to-door -door environmental canvassing. So for two years, I worked in the world, and then I went back and got a master's in environmental studies at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And I applied for a PhD program at MIT. I got in. It was in urban studies and planning, which is really public policy. I, thought, I still thought I was going to be a professor. I was always writing on the side. And uh, by the time I graduated my PhD, I had lost all interest in being a professor because while I enjoyed uh, teaching and I taught a couple of classes and created a slew of classes while I was at MIT, I didn't 
enjoy the prospect of writing the kinds of books and papers that I would need to to get tenure at a university. So I never applied for a single teaching job. My wife and I, uh, Jen, Jennifer, who grew up in Swampscott, uh, and she grew up in Marwood, sorry, her parents now live in Swampscott, and uh, we moved down to D.C., and uh, I, I worked for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, then a whole bunch of different jobs, EPA, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board, but I was always writing on the, the side, and in the early 2000s, I had published a few books. I told my wife I wanted to become a full-time writer, and she's very practical, and she said, that's fine, but you have to put away an entire year's worth of your salary as a cushion before you can consider doing this full-time. So I continued working, I continued writing, I continued saving, and then in the summer of 2007, right after my book Leviathan, The History of Whaling came out, and uh, was doing fairly well. Jen turned to me one night while we were watching TV and told me I could quit my job. At the time, I was working in Gloucester at the National Marine Fisheries Service. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked, and she said, no, you, you've saved enough money. You can try this writing thing full time. <laughs> I worked up my courage, and a few weeks later, I quit. And I've been a full-time writer since the summer of 2007, but I want to emphasize that I could not have done this without the um, unstinting support of my wife. Uh, you know, we, we still have two incomes. She has a very good job, and uh, she manages all the money in our family, and she's very smart and shrewd about that. So uh, that's why I've been able to be a full-time writer. It's not a career you pick if you want to make a lot of money. It's very hard to make a lot of money being a writer. Most writers struggle. The Authors Guild, of which I'm a part, did a survey recently of more than 5,000 writers, and they determined that the average full-time writer only makes about $21,000 a year. Unfortunately, I'm above that because at that level, I don't think I can continue. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, because of my wife's support that I've been able to do this. And a little aside that a lot of your listeners, perhaps, especially if they're older, will know, is my wife's grandfather was named Harry Kemmelman, who wrote the Rabbi Small murder mysteries like Friday the Rabbi Slept Late. Hmm. So Jennifer had a some sense of what the writing life was like, and she was very supportive of it. So that's how I came to to be a writer and I've been doing it full time since 2007 and I hope to continue until I expire, which I hope is not too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. It sounds like you had a long road to get here, but um, seems to be working out for you. Um, So now that people have um, just find themselves with more time on their hands, uh, I've seen a lot about this might be a good time to start, you know, taking advantage of that time to, um, produce something, either, you know, a book or uh, any kind of piece of writing or a piece of art. Do you, what advice do you have for people who have just the beginning <laughs> of an idea, but are not sure, you know, where to go from there? Yeah, well, a, a couple of things. Um, first, uh, don't let uh, 
better be the enemy of good enough and don't let failure scare you. You'll never be a writer if writing is what you want to do, even if it's just as a hobby, unless you're willing to sacrifice your time and effort to produce the work, but also go out in the world and take whatever the world doles out, which can include rejection after rejection or maybe amazing success. I have a whole file cabinet full of rejection letters uh, for earlier book ideas. In fact, my first six books that I wrote, I didn't have a literary agent. I pitched them all myself to different publishers. I got a lot of rejections, uh, and but I have a literary agent from the time I wrote Leviathan till now, which has made things easier, but I still get rejections. Mm. Uh, I remember my literary agent sent out 25 uh, copies of my proposal for the whaling book Leviathan and we only got only three publishers said that they were interested and a number of the other publishers sent back notes to the effect that oh nice proposal but this book won't sell well it's my best-selling book although that might be eclipsed soon by the pirate book which has done quite well um, so anyway what I would tell would-be writers is that give it a shot. But I also would, um, how do I, I would temper their expectations. Over the years, I have been asked out to coffee by many aspiring writers or have been contacted by them. And a lot of them I found have totally unrealistic expectations. They believe that they've got this wonderful idea. They're going to write the book and the world's going to come running, wanting to publish it and, and buy it. It's a very long road to go from concept to published book, much less published book with a reputable author. A lot of people self-publish. I have no problem self-publishing. But you have to understand that 999 out of every 1,000 self-published books probably won't sell more than a couple hundred copies to your friends and family. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, and, and published books with major, major publishers sometimes don't do well. They often defy expectations. And if publishers knew which books were going to succeed, they would publish far fewer of them. Um, so you need to have realistic expectations. There are a lot of very talented people. I, I believe that I don't believe that everybody can write a book. It takes a lot of discipline, a lot of time, a certain amount of skill and uh, some savvy. But I do believe that a lot of people could write a really good book. But that doesn't mean that you are gonna be that person to write a good book, because it's, it's a really hard thing to do from concept to fruition. The fruition is having a published book with an established uh, publisher. And even at that point, there's no guarantee of success. So you can't be afraid of failure. You can't be afraid of the white screen in front of you. You just need to write as best you can, get advice from friends and family or people you trust in terms of editing it or direction. And once you have a product that you're happy with, then go out into the world, try to pitch it. Now it's very different for fiction. I I really don't want to talk about fiction because I don't write fiction, Mm -hmm. but with nonfiction, it is very, very rare that a writer actually writes the book completely and then tries to sell it. 
almost exclusively anybody who's writing nonfiction will get a publisher by writing a proposal, which is in effect a detailed outline of the book, and then either sending it to your literary agent who would in turn farm it out to different potential publishers, or if you don't have a literary agent, then you would send it to publishers themselves with a cover letter and your outline. I will tell you that in recent years, it has become much more difficult for authors who don't have literary agent representation to even get their foot in the door at the top five or six or seven publishers, the big ones that everybody has heard about, because agents act as sort of like gatekeepers and they help to ensure the quality of the product being delivered up to the publisher for consideration. There are exceptions to this rule, but you should know that if you don't have a literary agent, it's going to be very hard unless you're a very, unless you're a celebrity yourself, unless you have a big platform hmm. to get noticed by some of the larger publishers. However, many of the smaller publishers, which unfortunately there are fewer and fewer of them, it seems over time, but many of the smaller publishers are approachable and you can make submissions directly to them. Now, people who ask me about writing often ask me about how to get literary representation. And again, that is difficult. Uh, there are a limited number of literary agents who are reputable. There are a number of literary agents who don't belong to the Association of Authors Representatives and or I would stay away from. I don't know who they are, but when you, when you look, if you're savvy about it, you can sort of figure it out. But there are a number of reputable literary agents. They are swamped with queries from want-to-be authors. And that is because of something all of your listeners will know only too well. So many people believe or want to, believe that they can or want to write a book. There's something about writing a book that attracts a lot of attention. And people often think about, I want to write a book. So there's this huge volume of people out there who are interested in writing a book. In fact, they recently did a survey in England and they asked the respondents, if you could pick any career at all to pursue, what would it be? And being an author, being a writer was the number one response. Mm. And I think in the United States, there's some fascination with writing. I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody and they find out I'm a writer and all of a sudden a slew of questions come out and they're all excited and they tell me, oh, I want to write a book about this or I want to do that because it's, it's a strange profession. Not strange, but not that many people do it, especially full-time and relatively successfully. And it's cool to have this product, a book, at the end of the process. It's a very physical, tangible thing. It's, it's very exciting. And the reason I say all that is there are so many people, many of them very talented, who want to write books. My literary agent has been an agent for 40 years. He represents people like me who write nonfiction history books. He represents people who write science fiction. He represents people who write fantasy. And he represents people who write nature books. 
And he represents some very, very famous writers. Most recently, he he represents the woman who wrote Where the Crawdads Sing, which is uh, Delia Owens, Mm -hmm. um, which is like the it book of the last year or two. Right. And he represents Diana Gabaldon, who wrote the Outlander series. And he's a great agent. I love him. Uh, but he gets, he told me, he gets something between 100 and 200 queries a week from people who want to represent, who want him to represent them. I, over the years, he's been my agent since 2007. I have sent him, I think it's 16 different people that I've referred to him, a few of them, very established writers already who are looking for uh, agent representation or to get a new agent. And of those 16 people that I sent to my agent, he only took on two of them. Mm. And all of them, I wouldn't have passed them along unless I thought, hey, these are serious people that have a potentially good product to sell. So I say that by way of underlining that it's a difficult road if you choose to pursue becoming a writer, but it's not impossible. The way I got my agent, very interesting. Uh, I had written a number of books and I knew I wanted to become a full-time writer. I'd read a bunch of articles in writer's market and I'd talked to some other writers. And I realized that for me to achieve my goal of becoming a full-time writer, it would be very helpful for me to have a literary agent. So. I had just written two books for the Smithsonian Institution, their their press, Smithsonian uh, Books, which is no longer around. Uh, It was bought by somebody else. Anyway, my editor there had been in the business for 10, 20 years, and I asked him, can you recommend a few agents for me to reach out to? And he gave me three names. For whatever reason, I picked Russ, my current agent. I sent him a one-page letter that said, I want to write a book about whaling. Here's a little bit about me. And I include I included with the letter one of my earlier books, which is the only coffee table book I ever did. It was called The Smithsonian Book of National Wildlife Refuges, the most gorgeous book I've ever been associated with. Mm. It has more than 200 full-color pictures in it uh, by a professional photographer who I hooked up with. And the reason I included it is because I knew that my agent represented a bunch of nature writers, um, including David Sibley, the guy that writes all the bird guides. Mm -hmm. So Russ got my letter. He called me up a couple of days later. We had a two hour conversation towards the end of which I said, will you represent me? And he said, no. I said, why not? (laughs) He said, all you have is an idea. You wanna write a book about whaling. You don't have a proposal. You have nothing for me to sell. So I pleaded with him. I said, please, it would mean a lot to me if you'd represent me. And he said, no. And I kept pushing the thing. And finally, I think exasperated, he said, fine, I'll represent you. I'll send you a contract, but it doesn't mean anything until you write a proposal and I have something to pitch. So I signed the contract. He was my representative. And it took me, I think, six or seven months to write the proposal for my whaling book, Leviathan, A History of Whaling in America, or The History, I don't remember so long ago, The History of Whaling in America. That proposal was 95 pages long. And that's the one that got me 
contract with WW Norton and sort of launched my more serious phase of my writing career. I'm happy to report that since then, because I'm a, more of a known quantity, and all of my last my last five or six books have all been with WW Norton and Livewrite, which is an imprint of WW Norton. Because they know me so well, my proposals have gotten shorter and shorter. For my pirate book, my proposal is only 15 pages long. Mm-hmm. For the next book I'm writing, which is about privateers and the American Revolution, I didn't even write an outline. I just sort of wrote an essay <laughs> about what I wanted to write. It was a detailed essay. Right. And they liked it. So that's one of the benefits of being a known quantity. Nobody questions my ability to actually research and write a real book. Mm-hmm. But when you're starting out, you need to prove to them through your proposal, through your background, that you're the kind of person that can take this from beginning to end. So that's sort of a very long-winded answer. You, you can tell I spend a lot of time alone because when yeah. I have an opportunity to talk to somebody, I just keep talking. Oh, I think everybody's <laughs> like that right now. But <laughs> uh, also, you know, certainly good advice for somebody who might be just starting out or thinking about starting out. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your books. How do you pick the topics for them? Um, I know you write a wide range of topics from lighthouses to piracy, yeah. if you're fur trading, what, like what's that process like? It, typically, uh, for the whaling book, for example, we just moved back to Marblehead, my wife and I. Mm-hmm. It's right near the ocean, as you know. I lo- always loved the ocean. I thought I was going to be a marine biologist. I was trying to think of a book topic. I just finished a book called Political Waters about the cleanup of Boston Harbor. I knew I wanted to write something about the ocean and American history. And in our house, I'm looking at it right now, we have a shaker style box it's a pretty big one that a a friend of the family uh, gave us Uh, and on it there's a it looks like it's from the 1800s it's not it's a modern box but it was painted by somebody with a whaling scene it's got ships and small whale boats and they're attacking a whale Uh, it looks like it's a right whale on a, a green ocean and i remember looking at that and saying, hey, whaling's a neat topic. <laughs> I read Moby Dick, but you know, maybe there's something there. So that's how I came up with the idea for the whaling book. And I did research and I said, okay, there's something new I can provide. One of the things that I'd like to do, a lot of my books are sort of synthetic. They have a lot of new material in them, but also I take very broad topics that span sometimes hundreds of years and pull them together in a unique way, in a narrative format, the likes of which that kind of topic had never seen before. That's sort of the way that I look at it. I pick books that have a narrative backbone to tell a larger story about American history, whether it's whaling, lighthouses, fur trade. So that's how the, the whaling book came about. While I was reading, while I was writing the whaling book, I read this book called, uh, called The Founding of New England by James Truslow, which was from the early 1900s, I think 1928 or 32. It won the Pulitzer Prize back then. Mm-hmm. And in that book, there was a sentence about the pilgrims of Plymouth. And it said the pilgrims in their earliest, most difficult years relied on the Bible and the beaver for their sustenance. I knew what he meant about the Bible because everybody's heard the story about, you know, the pilgrims leaving England and Holland because of religious persecution and they were religious uh, refugees to some extent. 
but I had no idea why he was mentioning the beaver. I started reading and I suddenly discovered that selling beaver pelts that were tamed from the Native Americans around Plymouth was the number one way that the Plymouth colony earned its keep, made its money during the first 10 years of its existence. And I thought, hey, that's really fascinating. And I started reading more about the fur trade. And I realized that the fur trade was incredibly important to the evolution of the colony and the United States that came afterwards. And to wrap in a lot of things that I was interested in, you know, animals, I'm not interested in killing animals, but animals, early conservation, uh, American history, just great stuff. So that's how the fur trade book came out. When I was writing the fur trade book, there was a chapter on the sea otter trade with China, the sea otter and seal trade with China. I knew nothing about this, that that America had a very extensive uh, trade in the late uh, 1700s, more the early 1800s, killing sea otters off the Pacific Northwest coast and killing seals all over the world and bringing them to Canton, China, which is now Guangzhou, China, and selling those furs because the Chinese love furs. They would pay up to $100 for a really nice otter pelt. And this is at a time where an average laborer only made about a dollar a day. So it was sort of a, a, a furry gold rush. And I said, oh, this is a really neat story. Let's see if there's a broader story about America's connection to China. And I started reading about the early China trade, tea, the opium wars, silk, uh, China, porcelain. I said, hey, this is really fascinating. Not only is it fascinating, but I'm right next door to Salem, Massachusetts, which was really big into the China trade. And there's the Peabody Essex Museum that has a huge collection of paintings from the China trade era. Plus, my wife and I got married at the Peabody Essex Museum. We were one of the first marriages there because my mother-in-law was a docent and she was looking around for a place to get married and she was talking about it in the museum one day and they said, what about here? And I, I think we were the first marriage, first wedding or maybe the second. Now it's a huge business. But so anyway, I had a real connection to the China trade by location, by, by marriage and by interest. So that's how the book When America First Met China came about but not all of my books have popped out of my head for example uh the lighthouse book was uh something that my editor norton contacted my agent and said hey would eric like to write a book about lighthouses and i said i don't know i went off for about a month i read a bunch about lighthouses and then i said hey this is a great topic so that's how the lighthouse book came about the pirate book I had about six or seven ideas I was playing with, and I decided I would pitch them to my kids and Harry and Lily, uh, both of whom went to Marvel in high school. Lily now works in New York City. She's here with us because of COVID-19 right now. And my son's a student at Northeastern. He's taking classes online right now. But both of them, when they were teenagers, I pitched them the different ideas. And when I got to the idea of writing a book on pirates, they both got really excited and they said, that's it, Dad, you have to write about pirates because, of course, kids love pirates. So that was a big part of the reason why I was interested in pirates. And luckily, my publisher agreed. So that's how the pirate book came about. My hurricane book is another example of a topic that I did not come up with, although for a long time, I had wanted to write a book about hurricanes. 
but I couldn't find the one hurricane I wanted to write about. The, the, the classic uh, candidate would have been the hurricane of 1938, which walloped New England and a lot of people around here know about. But there have been three or four really good books written on the hurricane in 1938. I didn't want to just add to the mix. So while I was looking around for a topic after having written the, uh, the, uh, my pirate book, again, my editor contacted my agent and me and, and said, hey, does Eric want to write a book about hurricanes? And it fell on fertile ground because, hey, I was thinking about it already. Now I could write about a bunch of hurricanes, including I have a whole chapter on the hurricane in 1938. So that's my newest book, which is coming out on August 4th, which is called The Furious Sky, mm-hmm. the 500-year history of America's hurricanes. And that has an interesting connection to COVID-19, maybe not interesting, but telling. Uh, that book was originally scheduled to publish on June 4th of this year. But my publisher decided about three weeks ago to move the publication date from June 9th to August 4th, the thinking being that if it came out June 9th, it still might be, uh, you know, overshadowed or, 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 or drowned by our, what we're dealing with with COVID-19. But my publisher made a guess that maybe by August, the world would be back to some semblance of normal Mm -hmm. so that I still might be able to go out and give book talks and people would be going back to bookstores. I have no idea if that's going to happen. I'm very happy that my publisher decided to move the publication date because it's a sign of their faith in the book and wanting to give it its best launch possible. And I do know that a number of book talks that I had scheduled for May and June already, some of them not about this new book, but some of my older books, had already been canceled. So I'm hoping that by August 4th, all of us are back to living some reasonably normal life. Uh, But given how crazy this situation has been and unpredictable, I don't know. And I'm fully prepared to have my book come out and have all of my book talks, which I spent so much time setting up, including one at the Swanscott Library, I think in in September now. I'm fully prepared for having all of them canceled. And even if they're not canceled, my guess is that if people are out and about, that the number of people that come to my talks will probably be fewer because people will still be wary about being in uh, a room with a bunch of other people. That's my guess. Right. And most of the people, most of the people that come to my talks are in their fifties and sixties and seventies and older. Uh, I do get some young people, but by and large, most history writers, nonfiction book authors who give talks, their audiences are, are the majority of their audiences are definitely older because those are the people who have more time on their hands. Their kids are out of their house if they had kids. And they can make the time to go to these talks. Mm-hmm. So, and that's unfortunately part of the population that is most vulnerable, it appears, to this COVID-19. But right. there's nothing I can do about that. So I'm not really, I'm not worrying about it. It's just, we're all dealing with this new reality that is so strange and scary that uh, 
how it falls out. I know for a fact in the publishing industry, it's already had major impacts. Major publisher Macmillan has already laid off a bunch of people. A lot of bookstores, as you know, or most of them are closed. Uh, a number of independent bookstores, I'm sorry to say, will not make it through mm-hmm. this uh, disaster because they're already on the edge financially. Uh, I can say from my own personal experience, which is the only one I really can draw on directly, other than knowing that other writers, I know a number of writers who have had events canceled and uh, their book launch, which has occurred now or last month, was a very muted affair. But what the, with bookselling in my own little part of the world, I could tell you, and it must be online, but my pirate book, which is my most recent book, has been selling very, very well in the last month. Mm-hmm. And maybe more people are at home ordering it. Well, part of it is because of the Barnes & Noble promotion. That definitely helped. Just the other day, uh, just a week ago, I was told by my publisher that Barnes & Noble ordered, uh, not not just Barnes & Noble, but another 7,500 copies of my paperback book were just printed. I mean, they, they went back with another print order about a week and a half ago. So I know that that one's still selling well. And I'm sure that part of it is because people are home and you can just listen to the news so long. So people who would either naturally read books or might like to read books, they've got more time now. Unless they're worrying about having lost their job or somebody, one of their loved ones being sick because it's a very stressful time no matter what. But in those situations, it's much more stressful. I doubt those people are reading at all. And I, I wish them the best, but I do think that a lot of people are home are finding that they have a lot of time on their hands and certain segments of the book industry, like children's books are selling phenomenally well because mm-hmm. all these people want to read to their kids or home all day. Right. Good. So, but I would much rather, even if this, even if my own book has been selling well, that that's, that's nothing. I would much prefer that we never went through this situation. It's horrible for everybody. In the long term, it's going to be horrible. It's not going to be good for me for a whole variety of reasons or any author because the publishing industry is going to be hurt. It already has been hurt. And uh, we're just going to be in a new reality. Um, I'm also wondering about how it's affecting the ability. I'm sure A Furious Sky has you know, been completely researched and is probably finished at this point, but um, if you're working on something else, how has it affected uh, the ability to do research? Um, That's a good question. No, no, Furious Sky is all done. It's at the, it's at the printer right now. It's going to be printed. The, the books are going to be printed uh, next week. And, and then they're going to be in the warehouse until August. So Furious Sky, I finished that months and months and months ago. Uh, I'm working on a new book, though, on privateers during the American Revolution. And fortuitously, well, there are two, two ways to answer it. First, an awful lot of material that I need to use is online. Mm. You would not, you'd be amazed at how many museums, libraries, and other sources have digitized primary and secondary materials that are easily accessible for free online. For example, Google Books. If I, 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 there are hundreds of books written in the 1700s, late 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, all out of copyright, totally free, public domain that talk about 
the American Revolution, which is the time that I'm focusing on, but also talk specifically about privateers. There are journals of privateers. There's tons of stuff. So just by going on Google and Happy Trust and other library and historical society websites, mm. even before COVID-19 hit, I had probably downloaded more than 100 books, complete books and articles from JSTOR on privateers or relating to my topic. So that's a lot of research material. On top of that, I have uh, privileges at Harvard's Widener Library because I'm a writer and I've been going there for years. And about four or five days, I don't remember the exact date, but it was early in March before everything sort of went south very quickly and they were closing things before Harvard closed, before my old PhD advisor, one of my PhD advisors is Larry Bacow, the president of Harvard. He has COVID-19, so does his wife. I think he's getting better now. But before that all hit the fan, as they say, and everything was closed down, it was about a week before that, I was in Cambridge. I went to the Widener Library. I spent two days there. I went two separate days. And what I do is I go in there and I order, I probably ordered 40 or 50 books. And these are, almost all these books are out of print books, older books related to the topic I'm working on, privateers. And I spent two full days standing at the scanner they have there, scanning in pages, saving them to USB stick, coming home and downloading them onto my computer. So what I've been doing the last few weeks is I'm in the research phase of my book since I only signed the contract for it about a month ago. So what I've been doing, fortunately, I have two months. I have enough stuff that is keeping me busy for the next five months. And I've got two file. I've got a file that still has 140 or 150 different documents in it. I've already gone through around 50 of them. Uh, you said like 200. They're all documents about privateers of the American Revolution that I have to read and take notes on. So every day I go into that big folder. I pick a book. I open up the PDF, I read it, I take notes, I cut and paste things, and I'm sort of building the background research for the book. And then at some point, I've done enough, I know what I want to write, and I'll start writing it. But the writing process for me probably wouldn't have even begun in normal circumstances until this October. Wow. Or maybe September. So it usually takes me about seven or eight months of just pure research, no writing at all, mm -hmm. before I write a book. Because I have to know what I want to say <laughs> and where I'm going to get the information. So fortunately, I'm really glad I went to Harvard those two days before the Widener Library closed down because I was able to get some really key uh, documents. And so I'm perfectly okay researching my book right now, not moving from my home office. I've got more than enough to keep me busy for many, many months. That being said, I, I don't like being housebound. Mm -hmm. I, I like going to local libraries. I like going to Abbott Library, the Swampscott Library, and, and picking up books or just wandering around, you know, going out to eat, all the normal things that all of us are not having right now. And I do notice that it's just created a very different mindset the days are much longer they're not broken up with things and and it's just been a very surreal experience although i am getting a lot of research done and i'm i'm moving ahead
That's great. Yeah, it sounds very busy for you. But um, usually on the podcast, I interview other librarians about a book that they've recently read, uh, mostly for fun. Have you been reading anything, you know, more for enjoyment <laughs> at this time? Or for fun. Uh, <laughs> no, here, here's a, uh, a dirty little secret. It's not dirty, but mm-hmm. I, I, we didn't really go over this. My background I have an undergraduate and a master's and a PhD, but it's not in, it's not in history. They're all in public policy or environmental mm-hmm. policy. I, I didn't take, I took maybe one or two history classes once I got out of high school. So I'm not a trained, I'm not an, a trained historian, even though people call me a historian because I am in the, in the sense that I tell stories about history. But so uh, that's all by way of saying I don't have a huge reservoir of just knowledge about American or world history. I'm, I'm fairly educated on it. Certainly re- writing all these books, I get more and more educated, but every book I've chosen, save for one, my Boston Harbor book, probably were on topics that I didn't know a lot about when I started the book. So I have such a huge backlog of reading that's directly related to the book I'm working on that I have very little time that I'm willing to devote to just pleasure reading. Mm-hmm. So like in the last month, there's not anything that I've read other than Smithsonian Magazine and the New Yorker and, uh, and Audubon Magazine, which I guess there, there hasn't been any other book that I've read that hasn't been about either the American Revolution or privateers during, before, after the American Revolution. So I read, I'm reading a lot of old books, old articles, and some newer ones. Mm-hmm. So the short answer is I don't have a good recommendation. Um, other than, but there's one exception. I get asked to blurb uh, books. Uh, write blurbs on the back of books. And so I, I wish I had, I wish I got asked more because it forces me to read something else. Mm-hmm. But one of the books that I blurbed recently that just came out about a month ago, which I thought was very enjoyable, was called Voyage of Mercy by Stephen Pulio. Mm-hmm. And your, your listeners will know him because he wrote that book, The Dark Tide, about the molasses right. disaster in Boston. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this book, The Voyage of Mercy, is about the USS Jamestown and the Irish famine in the mid-1850s and one of America's first humanitarian missions. So that was uh, that's a fun book that I read recently. Another one is a book that's coming out in two weeks called Rivers of Power, How a Natural Force Raised Kingdoms, Destroyed Civilizations, and Shapes Our World. So it's a book about how rivers have shaped world history and that's coming out at the end of April. And I, I found that very enjoyable. I, I recently read and blurbed a book that hasn't come out about black whalemen, mm. which was an interesting book. Uh, I blurbed, this is a book about a year ago. It's pretty good uh, by Jeff Gwynn, a friend of mine called the vagabonds. It's the story of Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's 10 year road trip. That was uh a fun book. So I, I guess I do, I do read other books that aren't related to what I'm working on, but it's mainly books that are sent to me by publishers asking for a blurb. Right. And uh, that doesn't happen. You know, I'd say it happens 
you know, maybe three or four or five times a year. If I ever write a book that is the number one New York Times bestseller, then I'll be asked to write 30 or 40 blurbs a year and I'll have my pick on them. But until you become <laughs> super famous, you only get certain uh, certain books. But some of them are really good. I blurbed the book The Oregon Trail, which is a huge big hit by Rinker Buck a couple of years ago. I, I blurbed that book. Uh, I blurbed a lot of interesting, for me, very interesting books. <laughs> so I should, it'd be great if I read more, you know, fun stuff that has nothing to do with what I'm working on, but that's sort of not the nature Oh, I'm sure you get your hands full. Right the now. What's that? I'm sure you get, sounds like you get your hands full with other, other reading material. Yeah, if I was a faster reader, oh, that yeah. would help. I'm not the fastest reader. I'm a pretty fast reader, but I know some people that just man, they can plow through a book. I don't know how much they retain, but they they really seem to read them very quickly, and that that hasn't been. That's not my my skill set. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, I just appreciate you talking to me. Um, sounds like you gave a lot of recommendations for our patrons. And I know that everybody's really excited for your book to come out and then for um, the talk, hopefully in September, early. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that'll be great. But if you want to let people know about my website, mm-hmm. it's just www.ericjdolan.com. E-R-I-C-J-A-Y-D-O-L-I-N.com. And the reason I say that, people are looking for things to do. Right. There's not a, not a huge amount on my website, but there are the introductory chapters to most of my books. And I also have a page on the site that are book trailers, which are little three to five minute videos that I put together that give a summary of the different books that are kind of fun or entertaining to watch. So that might be something to add. That's great. Yeah. I'll definitely let everybody know. And I wish you, I wish you the best during whatever is happening next. And I hope you guys are back at work on May 4th. Oh yeah. The next time I'm in Swampscott library, I'll say hello. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I do want to add that the Swampscott public library and in particular Alice has been wonderful to me over all these years. And I really appreciate it. Mm. Yeah. We love Alice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks. Thanks a yeah, lot for interviewing you. me, and uh, good luck with uh, with everything. All right, great. Thank you so much. Okay, take care.